0: morning. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. We'll read through verse 18 in a moment. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 6. We'll read through verse 18 in a moment. Today I'm trying to convince you that something yet to come that's beyond your grasp is better than trading that future for what little bit you can grasp a hold of now. It's kind of like that game show where you could take the prize in the hand or wait for a different prize later. Uh, today's sermon is kind of like the inversion of the wisdom of a bird in the hand is better than one in the bush. It's like the inversion of that from the standpoint that we, what we don't yet quite fully grasp is by faith better than that which we have right now. And it would require faith, wouldn't it, in order to embrace that. You wouldn't embrace that otherwise. And so that's one way that we identify people of faith is is their tendency toward being able to look through the annals of time and say, I'm not going to trade what I can grasp for that which is just beyond my grasp, but which I am promised in Christ. What you can grasp hold of right now is fleeting. No matter how much of it you can grab. No matter how rich you become. You will go the way of the founder of Apple. You will go the way of all of the people that have passed from these earthly scenes from inception to date. And we must wrestle with what it means to live in light of death. And that's what Second Corinthians in this section is framing for us and helping us with. Last week I preached about discouragement. I introed with discouragement is sort of like a disease. It leeches off your body but contributes nothing to it and nothing to your valid goals. Discouragement takes your energy. Discouragement can't be ignored for long like disease. Eventually it has to be addressed or it'll render you ineffective and hopeless. Discouragement acknowledged is one thing, but allowing it to reign in your life is another. And we talked about waging war against discouragement last week. You might want to listen to that sermon on our website if that would encourage you. But this text is a continuation of that in the sense of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 encourages us not to lose heart. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 also encourages us not to lose heart. It says, do not lose heart. And so there's an inclusion there, verses in between, verses 2 through 15, that's about overcoming discouragement. But I'm not going to frame this sermon just the same as I did last week, because of the way that I think the text leads us. Today, I kind of want you to think like children. Think like kids that have caring parents, parents that don't exasperate their children. Over time, parents that don't exasperate their children tend to, not always, but tend to have children That hold their parents in esteem. And even sometimes children that say, uh, look what my dad can do, you know, that type of mentality. Look what what my dad can do. My dad can do this and do that and fix this and fix that. There's something about that that is proper. There's something uh, to, to hold a father in esteem when a father is a good, good father. There's something about that is proper. It's difficult for us because we have such pandemic fatherlessness in our culture. And even when a father is present, there's, there's guilt and there's blame shifting, and there's sometimes abuse, and there are the dissatisfactions of poor fatherhood have ramifications for really all of societal life and even life in the church. I want you to know this morning, I'm not building this metaphor off of the adequacy of your earthly father. I want you to know from the onset that our heavenly father is a good, good father. When we pray, as our Lord taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, He's a good, good Father. He is, not, he is not filled with the failures that I as a father am filled with. He's not filled with the failures that the other fathers in this congregation are filled with. Even as they try to follow Christ, they're filled with failures too. And He's certainly not to be put on par with the Father's, out in the world that seek not to serve the Lord or to serve their family, but oftentimes are either absent or fathers in name name only. And so when I talk about thinking of the Father this morning, I want you to look to the Heavenly Father and not simply to an earthly example. And hold Him in high esteem. What I hope that you will do as a result of this sermon is to look at God as your encourager, as the one that can help you maintain motivation when you're tempted to lose heart for the things of God. I want you to, through this sermon and through the manner of life that God is leading us in, I want you from time to time to sort of like a child that's not exasperated by his father to look and say, look what my father can do. That's my dad that does that. You know, and children do this sort of uh, blindly at times—not blindly. They have evidence from patterns of living, but they do it naively. Let's say it that way, not blindly. And I, it's kind of what I'm sensing is: what if we have that mentality about our good, good Father this morning? Look what He can do. Um, so, kind of the 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 point of the sermon and a sentence is: we maintain energy for ministry by looking to God, not ourselves. By looking to God, not to ourselves, we maintain energy for ministry. Particularly by looking to God's power, verses 7 through 12, to God's people, verses 13 through 15, and to God's timing, verses 16 through 18. So God's power, we'll lump in verse 6 as well, verses 6 to 12. God's people, verses 13 to 15, and God's timing verses 16 to 18. So without any more introduction, let's just read the text straight through 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verses 6 through 18. And if you're new with us this morning, we want to inform you it is my pattern to preach consecutively expositionally through a book of the Bible. And so this is, last week we were in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6, and now we're picking up in verse 6 and going through verse 18. This is our pattern. Next week we'll be in chapter 5 and so on, just to kind of uh, catch you up there if, if you're new with us. And we do welcome you this morning. Now listen to God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace to all who hear. Now again, we maintain energy for, for merciful ministry by looking to God and not to ourselves, particularly, first of all, looking to God's power. Not our own power, but to God's power. I want you to look to God's power in this text this morning, beginning in verse 6. Our good friend and member here, Harish Venkatashalam, sent me a note from Ravi Zacharias Ministries. In Ravi's ministry, I commend to you his apologetics ministry. But I just want to read to you what he wrote about verse 6. It's so insightful. He said, The pursuit of the Hebrews was symbolized by light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. You read in verse 6. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. This is the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. If you look at verse 6, the Lord created light, created out of he said the pursuit of the Hebrews was light. The pursuit of Greeks was symbolized by knowledge. That's why the biblical writers say these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. For the Romans, differently than the Greeks and the Hebrews, it was glory, the glory of the city of Rome, the glory of the city that wasn't built in a day. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. The apostle Paul, a Hebrew by birth, a citizen of Rome, living in a Greek city, had to give to them the ideal of his ethic or his way of life. And he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's pretty helpful. It's God's power. It's not ours. The pursuits of our life don't need to be reducible to our culture or our family of origin or our societal place. Our pursuits should not be reducible to simply light or knowledge or glory or what the Hebrews or the Greeks or the Romans might have thought our pursuit is summarized in one word, and that is Christ. We are hidden in God with Christ. We are pursuant of Christ, and our power comes from God. Our power is not in ourselves. That's why verse 7 describes the treasure that is in us as in a jar's, as in a jar of clay. Uh, that phrase, jars of clay, sometimes thought of as earthen vessels that phrase jars of clay was popularized in the late 20th century by a Christian rock band called Jars of Clay. And they had a hit song that I know some of you have probably heard, Flood. And so I drudged it back up and listened to it this last week. And it's very much in my head. Thank you, Greg Delancey. Um, but <laughs> he was uh, following his sermon card. And he looked ahead to chapter 4, verse 7, and saw Jars of Clay. And so he sent me the YouTube link to Flood, and so I, I, it's, it, was, it was addictive. I listened, and then I listened again and again. So anyway, uh, jars of clay would be a phrase that would be common amongst youth groups and, and, and young people of about 20 years ago. So uh, just a little side note there. But the meaning, the reason they chose that phrase shouldn't be lost. The meaning of jars of clay is that the body that we have is outwardly wasting away. It will in time fail us. Uh, Colin Cruz wrote about it like this, and I'll tell you what he said. He said, "We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthenware vessels were commonplace in every home in the ancient Middle East. Virtually, they were inexpensive. They were easily broken. Unlike metal vessels, which could be repaired, or glass ones, which could be melted down, the materials reused. Cruz urges, once broken, earthenware vessels had to be discarded. They were thus cheap and of little value." Paul may have had in mind the small earthenware oil lamps oil lamps sold so cheaply in the marketplaces. If so, the light of the gospel would be the treasure, while the apostles in their frailty would be the earthenware lamps from whom the light was made to shine in the world. So how you think about this metaphor is, is almost like a throwaway cup. It's a metaphor, and all metaphors break down. Uh, but it's almost like a throwaway cup in the sense of that the, the, the exterior is not worth much But the promise of the gospel is that the treasure is not housed in trash, but that this jar is going to be turned into a jewel because this body is going to be turned into an eternal glorified body. And so instead of it being considered trash, it's actually housing a treasure and is part of the treasure. But in the temporary sense, jars of clay make sense because we all know that these bodies break down, right? And we know it increasingly, over the course of our lives, especially if the normal progression of things take place, we don't tend to get more healthier. We tend to get less. And uh, so as we think about this passage, when we think about the jars of clay, we realize afresh that the power is not from us. It's from God. And so we, in faith, need to cling increasingly to the promises of God. Now let your eyes gander down past verse 7 and look at verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8, it says, well, I should restate verse 7. The power belongs to God, not to us. That's the genesis of this first point. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. So there's no shirking the affliction of this, of this life. This isn't, uh, this isn't false hope. Uh, this isn't pop psychology. We, we acknowledge the affliction we face. Um, but it says, we're afflicted, but not crushed. There was another popular song that, while we're on the theme, I'm trading my sorrows. Some of you sang that a lot whenever you were younger, and it was the genesis for that was this verse. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Great imagery, a great quadlet there to help understand what's happening to us. It's very poetic. It's, it's a helpful uh, verse, and verses 8 and 9 is very helpful. And it says that in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So, always carrying in the body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So, even though we're afflicted, we're not crushed, we're perplexed, we're not driven to despair, we're persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. The connotation here in this passage is an acknowledgment that we are facing these afflictions, but that God is not absent in the midst of them. And it says here that in some manner, there's a purpose clause in verse 10, so that in some manner the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. And I think we should think about Jesus' own story. When I mean, Jesus goes through Gethsemane to get to the cross, he has sweat drops of blood. The persecution in his life increased toward the end, and yet he is the prototype, the firstborn among the brethren, the first resurrected from the dead, not to die again. And so, bodily resurrection is a hope that we have. And so in a, in a in a twist, in a plot twist, we see God's power by faith in that which we just can't quite hold on to yet, can't quite grasp, but we see it. And we're willing to forsake the treasures with a little tea of this life because we're looking for that treasure that surpasses it all. It is not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the assuredness of our own resurrection, the treasure of a glorified body. So even as he talks about the treasure being in jars of clay, He's not talking about the jar as a throwaway item. He's talking about the fact that we're going to get glorified bodies. That's a consistent biblical theology. And so he he climaxes this first stanza with verses 11 and 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And so the leaders of that church, the apostles, as if they're saying, the apostle Paul is saying, death's working on me life's at work in you. Understand that through the sowing of our lives, the giving of ourselves to live as Christ, to die as gain. My death is not an inhibitor of your sanctification. Your salvation is being worked out because we are giving our lives to this thing, just as Jesus gave his life for the church. And that leads us quite unequivocally into our second point, not just looking to God's power for encouragement, but also to God's people. Now, this may seem duplicitous, and so let me explain. Matt, you're saying that we don't need to look at ourselves. We need to look to God, and then after giving us a first point of being encouraged by God's power, you're telling me that we should look to God's people. Now, how does that work? I'm so glad you asked. It's because I'm not talking about you looking at yourself as a believer only. Some of your sensitive consciences and merciful spirits One of the problems with that is is that you're so sensitive that you tend to doubt your salvation, and so we have to work through that. Um, I'm not asking you to look to yourself for self-confidence only. I'm asking you to look at God's good work in His people in the whole church, and I'm not just talking about universal, although His work globally is encouraging. I'm thinking of Looking, finding encouragement, not losing heart by looking at the 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 ecclesia of God, the called out of God, the church locally. You know, we unite in a covenant of membership, and so we work through a process to hear the profession of faith of the of the believer and to to have a believer experience believer's baptism, and to have membership conferred on them in the church. And so, when a person becomes a believer in our church we have an expectation and have even interviewed that member, that prospective member, that they have received the gospel and that they can explain the gospel to someone when asked. We are very much so all in this ministry together of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you to look to that membership and the good work that God is doing through His power in His people for encouragement. And I think that that's what's going on To some extent, in verses 13 through 15, allow the text to explain. Listen to verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving, to the glory of God, which is the chief end of man. is to bring glory of God to God. That's our goal, is to bring Him glory. It's not to bring ourselves glory. We don't find encouragement by bringing ourselves gl- glory. We find ultimate encouragement by bringing God glory. He is the ultimate. And, and so this text is talking about how we can be encouraged by looking not to ourselves alone, but looking to God's people, what He's doing amongst His people. Now, how do I see that here? Well, Well, first of all, it says, since we have, verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Before we get to what has been written, that same spirit of faith reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So we have Paul writing this, and then we have Peter saying something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and he writes the letter, and he says this, to those who have ob- obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's writing to... The, the, the church, and he, as he writes to the believers, he says, you all have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Our faith is on equal standing with the apostles, Peter wrote. And Paul intimates the same thing. Now, he says, of course, Peter doesn't ground that faith on his own works. He says, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, God and of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he grounds it in the righteousness of Christ, that substitutionary atonement. That atonement for your salvation is substitutionary in nature. Jesus for you. He died in your place. You'll never be good enough to be saved. The point he's making, though, more broadly, is that that salvation, we have it in common obtained by faith, and we are in equal standing with the apostles in the sense of our salvation or of our justification of being made right in God's eyes. Now, I just read to you 2 Peter one. Look look at our focus text now that you probably have open in front of you. 2 Corinthians 4.13, we have the same spirit of faith. We do, the same spirit of faith as the apostle Paul, as the apostle Peter. We also have the same spirit of faith as King David. This citation here, I believed and so I spoke, is a citation from Psalm 116 verse 10 in the Greek text of the Old Testament. Yes, there was one of those. It's called the Septuagint. And Psalm 116:10 is being cited. And what's being conveyed is Paul wishes to, to, to stress to the people by quoting a psalm of David that even though David was suffering and he encountered suffering, he still had faith that he believed, and that he spoke of the righteousness of God. And so when it says, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, he's quoting from Psalm 115 and 16, and particularly the Greek text of Psalm one sixteen ten. 10. And what I'm gleaning from that and trying to convey to you is we have an, uh, obtained a faith that's like Peter's. It's, it's like Paul's. We have a faith like King David's. We have a common faith, the same spirit of faith that's at work in us, and that faith drives us to speak. What we believe motivates us; it encourages us to speak about the gospel. It says in verse fourteen, Second Corinthians four fourteen, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Well, that's a good, good father, isn't it? I mean, our God raises the dead. We can boast in him a little bit, right? He raises the dead. And Jesus is the firstborn. He's the prototype, the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead. And we're going to enter, and that's that thing that we can't quite grasp yet, but we will in death when we cross over, and we're going to be in his presence, his glorified body. We're going to get a glorified body. Verse 15. For This is now the Apostle Paul having sort of cited the history of commonality in faith. He now says in verse 15, all we're doing now, all this suffering that we're going through as leaders in your church and as church planters in the, in the region, all of that that we're doing is for your sake. Purpose clause, so that as grace extends to more and more people, so there's a hope that more and more people has extension of grace to them, this gospel of grace going to them. So that as that happens, though, the purpose of all of that is that we would increase in thanksgiving, but the purpose of all that is that God would get glory. He gets glory when we're thankful, and we're thankful when we have grace. And grace comes to us by extension of other people of faith formerly giving it to us in terms of being ambassadors and sharing it with us. They share the faith once for all delivered to the saints with us. That's how we got it. And so we we almost have this, this obligation. We do. It's an obligation that because we've received this faith, it's been told to us, we have this obligation as members of the flock of God, to then therefore extend that offer of grace freely to someone that, that doesn't yet have it. Now, more approximately, clearly, he means for the current members to have grace extended more and more to them and there to be more and more thanksgiving and therefore God to get the glory. So for the, the astute Bible student out there, I get that. And I'm taking just one little step further and I'm, I'm also actually just backing up and saying the Corinthians haven't been believers for more than five years at this point. And the grace was extended to them And he's saying to them, I want grace to pervade your congregation, and and I think implicitly by the fact that he's still planning churches, I think I want grace to extend to more and more people that don't have it yet. The elders of this church have a common desire. It's a desire that we'll articulate at the Elder Installation Service on November 24th when we have a Thanksgiving celebration. This verse puts me in the mind of all that because of Thanksgiving. But we have a common desire. It's that grace would extend to more and more people. You're the ambassadors of extending that grace. I, I don't have, I'm not gifted to be one anyway, but I don't have any desire to be a celebrity preacher. I don't want everybody in your orbit to come to know of grace because of my silver tongue. I want you to be equipped, to take the gospel of grace to the people that you know, and to extend that free offer of grace to them. That's what I want. That's our heart. And if he's given us any gift of oratory, it's for that, that you would be equipped to be God's man or God's woman, to extend a free offer of grace to more and more people. That's what we want from you. And if there's any lack of knowledge that's inhibiting that, if you don't know, let us help you. If there's there's a sin issue in your life that you're characteristically having this pattern of unrepentant sin and it's leaving you with enough guilt and shame that you don't feel that you can freely offer and extend grace to somebody, come please let us help, let us shepherd you. Anything that stands in the way, if it's a motivation issue, if, you're, if your love's grown cold, let us pray with you. Let, we need each other. And we look after the flock of God as we also look after one another. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, and, and we need grace one to another for sure, so that thanksgiving abounds and so that God gets glory. Within that, too, is a commission that in our health, we go, therefore, and we take this gospel to other people, making disciples. And that all begins, really, with grace having been extended to you. God helping you overcome hurdles so that you can extend that grace to someone else. We are his plan for evangelism. Second Corinthians makes this abundantly clear. We are his plan. We are to take the gospel, to extend that grace offer to other people. And I want you to want that, and I want that to be your desire, to understand that as your calling to see grace extended in the membership and extended to folks that are not currently engaged in the covenant church membership and and experiencing this grace together as we sing beautiful songs. The songs are beautiful, weren't they? I love seeing those songs this morning. Very moved by that. That's grace. That's ordinary means of grace. And we want people engaged in that so that they're thankful, so it's not just a holiday with turkey, so that they live Thanksgiving, so that who gets the glory? Not man, but God. So God's power. God's people. And thirdly, I want you to be encouraged by God's timing, God's timing. We struggle with that, don't we? Uh, we have a sense of what our timing ought to be for things. And um, often, oftentimes, things just don't come to pass in the timing that we want. And we can be discouraged by that, right? A lack of, of, of perceived results, uh, timing. And it could be a real trial of, of faith whenever We don't seem to get that which we think we ought to get when we ought to get it. And we can treat God kind of like a a bit of a cosmic slot machine, like, you know, prayers go up, blessings come down. I I say it, it happens. I speak it into existence. That's not the Bible, folks. That's not how God operates. God doesn't get manipulated or coerced into anything. Uh, The sheep doesn't say to the shepherd, this is how you need to be the shepherd. God is good. He's a good, good father. But fathers don't get manipulated by their children. You understand that? We don't coerce God in anything. We operate in good faith with open statement of the truth. We don't tamper with the Word. We just share the Word. We don't tweak grace for personal gain. We just extend grace. As we've been given freely, so freely we give. As we've been shown mercy, so mercifully we share. That's, that's the warp and woof of the Scriptures on this matter. So, our third point to be encouraged. God's timing, and I mean His timing not just day by day, but also all time, I mean eternally. Listen to this passage afresh. Here's what it says. So we do not lose heart, verse 16. Though our outward self is wasting, wasting away, our inner self, our our inner man, the outward man's wasting away, our inner self is being renewed and renewed day by day. You see that phrase, day by day? Think of timing. For this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Think now timing, eternal, day by day eternal, an eternal weight of glory beyond all hyperbole. It's where we, the Greek word for comparison is where we get the word hyperbole in our English language patterns. So beyond all exaggeration, beyond all comparison, beyond all that you can compare, it's preparing, our, our current affliction, acknowledged and embraced, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look, look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For what you see, the things that are seen, those things are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. We're clearly talking about time. Ionios, time. We're talking about time, and we're talking about the day by day, but we're also talking about the eternal. I mean, God, our God, my my Father, I want you to understand existed in eternity past and will exist into eternity future. I want you to understand how vast our God is. He is vast. Immeasurable is your God. And He loves you. You. Don't coerce him. It's a failed proposition. I tried that with Dad. It doesn't work. Don't coerce him. Return love to him as he first loved you. Don't collaborate with him to get your timing. Follow his commands. His commands are good. Our ability to keep his law is bad, but his law is not bad. His law is good. God is a good, good father, powerful, relational, and making a people. And he's an on-time God. He's not off time. The problem when timing doesn't seem to match up is with our sense of what ought to be. It's not with his. Listen to what Colin Cruz said about this passage. He said, Paul said that the Apostle Paul said he does not lose heart because he realized the greatness of the ministry upon which he embarked. Verses 16 to 18 say that he does not lose heart because while afflictions affect the outer man so that it wastes away, his inner man is being renewed every day. And in any case, the afflictions are but light and momentary compared with the weight and eternal character of the glory he is to experience as a result. Paul endures afflictions in the present world by keeping before him the glories of the yet unforeseen world. Though the outer nature, the jar, is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. This wasting away of the outer nature is related to afflictions. So on the one hand, Paul encounters debilitating persecution, which affects his physical body, but on the other, he experiences a daily renewal and strengthening in the inner nature. The expression of the inner nature is synonymous with the heart for Paul and denotes the center of a person, the source of will and emotion, thought, and affection. The best commentary on the strengthening of the inner nature is found in the prayer of Ephesians 3, 14-19. I'm going to read that in just a moment. The inner nature is to be strengthened when by the Spirit it is indwelt by Christ and rooted and grounded in the love of God. The apostle here is not writing about a dual view of the human constitution, which regards the inner soul as destined for immortality and the outer nature of the body as passing away. All that is written about end times and about the body make it clear that when we look to our future existence, it's not as a disembodied soul, but as a whole person, as a resurrected body. So let me speak doctrinally against philosophical dualism. It's it's not inner outer at war eternally. It's outer fading because of sin being made new. We are a whole person. God is resurrecting the whole of you. Paul's longing is not for the freedom of an immortal soul liberated from the shackles of the body, but rather to experience life in the presence of God in a resurrected body. And we see that in the whole of Corinthians and the whole of the New Testament witness. We are whole persons to be resurrected. Now... I want to read to you to encourage you from Ephesians three fourteen through 19. So I'm going to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. You're welcome to turn there, but you don't have to. Now listen to Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... in fact, God's ways seem to surpass knowledge. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's not that there's no knowledge, it's just that it goes beyond it. Not that we deny sound doctrine, it's just it goes beyond what we can explain. God's love is rich, and it's experienced in His people. God's power is experienced in His people, and God's power comes in His timing. Our call is one to faithfulness. Our call is not one to insist on counting fruit. Ephesians three fourteen to 19 is so helpful for us in that way. Affliction prepares us for a depth, a weight of glory. We see this inner work, but we see it by faith. We don't see it by sight. I can't just look out at you and see something on your flesh that tells me that you have an inner work in you. Certainly fruit can occur in a Christian's life, and it does. There are spiritual fruit in your life, but we're really talking about an inner work that starts to bubble up to the surface. We're not talking about an inner work that quickly fixes your physically failing body. What you see is transient, like passing through. And our inner spiritual reality will burst forth into eternity. And that's why from the beginning I said to you that I want you to not just focus on what you, the treasure you can grasp. Don't, don't do that. Focus not on the bird that's in the hand, but the bird that's in the bush to turn an old metaphor on its head. Look to what God has said is secured in Christ for you. And allow yourself to not focus on trivial treasures, but realize the treasure that's in the jar and the jar that is to become a jewel that's the that's the message today in terms of God's timing it's not ours uh, like structures in Europe if it was built in the last five hundred years it's it's relatively new me and uh, one of the elders was talking about that over dinner last night, is, is we have a different sense of time in America. Uh, think biblically for a second about a sense of, of time. It was 400 years between Joseph and Moses, and 400 years between Moses and King David, and 500 years to return from exile, and 500 years until the incarnation of Christ, and 300 years until Constantine legalized Christianity. We could go on through the Middle Ages and talk about the Reformation. God's sense of work in the world he's working in the moment, in the day by day, but he has an eternal grasp, and there is a gravity and a responsibility with that. We just can't dictate timing, and and we wouldn't want to in our better moments. We wouldn't want to but but know this you have a faith in common with the saints the same as Peter and Paul and David know this you have a faith in common with all the other believers that's right here day by day walking with you now and be encouraged by that God's power is being made manifest through his people and you have got a gospel to share stay on point with it stay with this ministry don't lose heart stay with it because God intends on working through you to extend grace to more and more people and for that we will be thankful we'll offer thanksgiving and he'll get glory and that's the goal Robert Murray McShane was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. He's famous for his Bible reading plans. I was thinking if I could locate one, we might post it on social media because it's a wonderful plan. He's famous for that. Um, but McShane really uh, is a treasure trove of, of great quotes. Let me tell you a, a couple. One of them is that Christ frequently gives us the desires of our heart, though not at the particular time we desire, but at a better time. Yeah, that's McShane for you. I can't take credit for that. Wow. Christ frequently gives us the desire of our heart, desires of our heart, though not at a pecul- but though not at the particular time we desired, but at a better time. At a better time than what we desired. Look to God for motivation. We are, are failures, for sure. And accusation holds on until we see Jesus who has atoned for our sins and that his sense of timing is better than ours. We we think we're too late to do anything and we are, but Christ has done everything. And, and he's on time to use you for the purpose that he has for your life. He's a good, good father to handle timing and the in-gathering of his people to accomplish all that he sets out to do. It's, a, it's like, look what my father's doing, kind of a moment. Uh, McShane, that Scottish preacher, uh, realized for sure the discipline of study through those Bible reading plans that we would fall short and realize we would need the encouragement of the learning community that is the church, I'm sure, and would realize our tendency to look to ourselves for results more than Christ. And he had another quote, and I think it's a great place to end today. McShane asserted this. He said, for every look that you look to yourself to try to figure out your faith, take ten looks to Jesus. He instructed his people, for every look you look to yourself to try to figure out your faith, take ten looks to Christ. We need that, don't we? We really need that. Because when we look at ourselves, I'm not talking about God's people work collective, just ourselves, in the day by day, we can lose sight of the eternal, and we don't see this treasure in this jar for what it is, and we don't see what he's doing. So we, we need, because of our sin nature, because of the already but not yet nature of what God's doing in us, it's not fully in our grasp yet, we, we need to look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And I want to leave you with that this morning. McShane's pastoral wisdom, as is, is apt 200 years later as it was when he first said it, for every look itself, take 10 looks to Christ. Unbelievers, look to Christ for the very first time this morning for salvation. He will do it. He'll do it for you. He will he did it for us. He'll do it for you. He'll, he'll take a, a wretched sinner and turn him into a saint. He's known to do it. He'll do it because of Christ's work on the cross, not because of yours. For every look itself, take 10 looks to Christ. Please bow your heads with me and pray as the ushers come. God, you're so good to us. We don't brag on you nearly enough, and we just stub our toes and and just make messes of things, jam our fingers trying to walk through this life as your body, but you promise to give us new bodies and to make us one in you, and we look to you now for our salvation, look to you for our encouragement, We would would have lost heart a thousand times over by now in this journey of salvation if it weren't for you. And so we look to you for power and for your people and for your sense of timing. We ask you to help us, help us in our faith, help our unbelief, guide us in this time and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our ushers are now going to collect your offerings and your tear-offs.